All right, then. Let's gear up and start the mission. Hello, and welcome to episode 26 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. We've been doing this a half a year already. And a little reminder, next week on Thursday is Christmas Eve, so there will be no podcast on December 24th. There'll be one on December 31st, New Year's Eve, and then we'll start all anew on January 6th or 7th, whichever that is in the new year. Unfortunately, this week's podcast is going to be terribly sad, especially for me and probably for any of you who listen, who read espionage thrillers, top-notch espionage thrillers. I'm speaking, of course, about the recent death on December 12th of David John Moore Cornwell, known to us as John Le Carre. Many times in your life, you encounter people that you think will be here forever, whether it's a singer, a parent, an actor, or a writer who inspires you. I'm sure fans of Hemingway were shocked when he died because they simply expected him to be there writing stories forever. I felt the same way about John Le Carre. I've made no bones about the fact that he inspires me, that I try very hard to pattern my writing after him. And whether I'm successful at it or not, you know, no one knows. I'm sure if I'm not, someone will tell me. But I always have his style of writing, that realism that he brought to espionage fiction in the back of my mind when I write anything. So I blogged about his death. It it took me a couple of days because it wasn't that it was painful. I didn't know the man except as an author. He had no clue on earth who I am or and he was a private enough man that he really didn't, you know, engage much with fans and only a very small circle of fellow authors. He was a very private man given his previous posi- given his previous profession see when i when i get emotional my my stutter manifests itself so if i stumble a lot through this pardon me some of it i can edit out some of it i can't given the profession that he used to be which was a spy he took a while to acknowledge that, but he eventually did acknowledge it. However, he never talked about and and told people 
interviewers and so forth, that he would never talk about what he had done while he worked for British intelligence. So I'm going to read from my blog post that I did Tuesday, was published today on my website, which is unexpectedpaths, all one word, dot com. And if you want to read an excellent obituary of him and an equally excellent appreciation, the obituary appeared in the Sunday edition of the Washington Post on the front page of the Washington Post, below the fold, but still on the front page. And the appreciation appeared in Monday's newspaper in the style section of the Washington Post. If you have a digital subscription, I encourage you to read it. You really get an insight into the man and the writer, especially if you haven't read the biography that was published about him in 2015 or if you haven't read his own memoir called The Pigeon Tunnel, which is excellent, a very uh, frank and deep look at his own life. He's very honest in it about his upbringing and so forth, um, and I'm going to talk about that in a bit. Let's get started then with the blog post from yesterday, which is entitled, Old Spies Don't Die until they do. And we open with a quote from one of my books, My Noble Enemy, published in 2015, which had to do with the death of a spy. There are old spies and bold spies, but no old bold spies, because if you believe all those blockbuster movies and bad novels, they go out in a blaze of gunfire. An 89-year-old former member of Britain's Domestic and Foreign Intelligence Services died this past Saturday, December 12, 2020, after a brief illness. You don't expect spies to die of pneumonia, but at 89, pneumonia is often a death sentence. And that was how we lost the best espionage novelist ever. As a friend remarked to me when I lamented this passing, 2020 sucks. Late Sunday afternoon, when a news alert popped up on my phone, I saw the words, Espionage writer John L. Part of me didn't want to look further because, with only the letters John L., I knew who it was. John Le Carre, my espionage writing icon. I clicked on the story and had the worst confirmed. John Le Carre, according to his publicist, had died of pneumonia, not COVID-related, at the age of 89. That's a good long life, but if you admired his work, you immediately felt cheated of all the stories that will now go unwritten, Cheated of a voice of reason on current British politics. Cheated of complex and flawed characters who drive their way into your psyche and make you realize spies have lives too. I'm not sure precisely when I first saw the movie The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, 
The movie came out in 1965, and I hadn't yet developed my interest in espionage fiction or otherwise. It had to have been in the 1970s I saw it, because back in those ancient times, movies took a long time to make it to television. At some point, I did see it, and was enthralled by the complex story. A British agent sees one of his assets gunned down in front of him, is recalled, and then offered a mission to redeem himself. That mission involved a complex setup, the involvement of a so-called innocent, but the agent succeeds at his mission. And then there's a gut-wrenching twist. When I saw, based on the novel by John le Carré in the credits for that movie, I immediately read the book. Close to 50 years later, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold remains one of my favorite books, not only in the espionage genre, but in any genre. If you haven't read it, if you've never read anything by Le Carre, read The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. It's a masterpiece. What attracted me to the story, the book, and the movie was the telling of a complicated and human saga without resorting to gun battles, although there is shooting in it at the end car chases, and gratuitous sex. In fact, in the book, as with most of Le Carre's books, the sex is only hinted at. Moreover, Le Carre's prose was breathtaking, quintessentially English in its weaving of multiple clauses and parenthetical phrases, but oh, so easy to read. His descriptions of characters planted an image of that character firmly in the reader's mind, down to the detail of what the character wore and idiosyncratic body language. Whenever I see a man of a certain age take off his glasses and apply himself to cleaning them with a handkerchief, I immediately think of Le Carre's most iconic character, George Smiley. After reading The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, for the next couple of decades I read every Le Carre book as it came out. Up to the breakup of the Soviet Union, I always thought of Le Carre as a Cold War author, and he was. His stories were British intelligence versus the KGB trying to outwit each other and succeeding sometimes British intelligence, sometimes the KGB, but always, in the end, the good guys sort of won. Maybe. It was always kind of gray. I couldn't imagine him writing anything else except Cold War stories. And combined with increasing work responsibilities, I broke the chain of reading his books. If a movie came out based on one of them, I went, but as we know, the movie never quite lives up to the book. When I retired from my full-time job to write espionage stories of my own, at the time I was reading mostly Alan First's work. First is a worthy contemporary of Le Carre, but First, until recently, limited his works to Europe between the world wars. Le Carre's stories 
took place all over Middle East, Africa, Asia. So once I started writing these stories, I decided it was time to reread Le Carre and catch up on the books I'd ignored. So I went back to the very beginning, his very first book called A Call to Murder, which was published in 1960. It's more a murder mystery, but it involves George Smiley. He's asked to come to, I believe it's his alma mater, or maybe a friend's alma mater, to solve a mystery. Um, I'm sorry, to solve a murder that has taken place. And he calls upon his espionage skills and, and tradecraft to solve that murder. Even in that one, even with it not being a strict spy novel, the the descriptions of the school, of the, you know, the physical area around the school, the people there, was breathtaking. You honestly felt it, it's one of those books, his writing is the kind where you find yourself transported to that place. You can see it, you can smell it. You can taste whatever food or drink is going on. It involves, as you're, as writers are taught, to involve all the senses. Once I started rereading Le Carre, I've worked my way up to the novel Single and Single, which came out in 1999, I believe. And I'm working my way towards his last book, which I have actually already read. His last two novels, A Legacy of Spies and Agent Running in the Field, came out in 2019 and 2017, I believe, and I read them out of sequence, as it were. In an interview that Le Carre did, and I think it was the 60 Minutes profile from a few years back, Le Carre said, and, and I'm paraphrasing it here, that if he'd been a lawyer, he'd have written about the law. Or if he'd been a stockbroker, he'd have written about the stock market. So think about George Smiley as a commodities broker. I can see Le Carre pulling it off. Because Le Carre, or David Cornwell, had been a spy, he wrote about spies. It was a world he said he knew inside and out, and he wanted, he also said, to see it portrayed accurately, not something idealized and made romantic or commercial. He wanted to show it in all its moral ambiguity. Basically, write what you know. I never worked in the intelligence community. It wasn't something I knew, but I did know I wanted to write about that world accurately. And Le Carre, though he never realized it, and I shudder to think what would have happened if he had, became my writing mentor. If I needed to understand how something worked, how tradecraft actually happened, I would go find it in one of his books. And the characters he created were such rich human portrayals. I keep that in mind every time I bring a new character into my work or when I'm dealing with an existing character. I think about how 
George Smiley is described, how George Smiley dialogue is written whenever I deal with a character. Now, lest you think he's perfect, <laughs> Le Carre has been criticized, and he accepted the criticism of his portrayal of female characters. With the exception of the little drummer girl, they're quite often in the background. They're a little flighty, or they're a bit addle-headed. I won't excuse that with, he was a man of his time, but I will say he left British intelligence before it actively began recruiting women agents. Also, he was not a writer who would insert something into his fiction just because it was trending. He wrote what he knew. As I read more about his life, I came to understand why he probably found it difficult to write women characters any other way than the way he did. His mother left the family when he was five years old, and he didn't see her again until she was 21, when she confessed to him that the reason she stayed out of his and his brother's lives was that their, the father, her ex-husband, who was a pretty shady character, terrified her. She was afraid one of his gangster friends would decide to take some sort of revenge against her for leaving her husband. And so Le Carre did not grow up in um, a family or a world with women as a positive source of Oh, how do we put it? With women as a as a as a role model, with certain kinds of women as a role model. Now, his father remarried multiple times, but these didn't last, and these were not exactly the women you would want raising your children. And then his first wife, who I think is probably characterized as George Smiley's wife in the Smiley books, who's who's married to him and stays married to him, but has affairs with almost everybody, including a mole that that Smiley is hunting down. But his first wife, uh, Le Carre, admits that he cheated on her repeatedly and that she kind of turned her nose up at his literary efforts. In other words, she wasn't supportive. Now, there's no requirement in a marriage for you to support your spouse and every little thing they do, but he was becoming successful and, and money was coming in. In fact, enough from his first three novels that he was able to leave British intelligence. And I have a little theory about that, which I'll say in a minute. I can't prove it, but it's my own personal little theory. So they divorced after several years of marriage and two children. But his second wife turned out to be, I guess, his life's partner. She became his copy editor, and, and Le Carre had this way of writing. He wrote mostly by hand. He would take notes, and then he would, he would write paragraphs of something, and then he would come back and type it. But the way he edited was to cut paragraphs out, or even sentences, and then tape them all back together and give it to her, and then she would put it in some sort of usable form. I think that's a very interesting author-editor 
relationship, especially being married. But I think that not working with very many women operatives without a good, strong female role model and a disastrous first marriage probably colored the way he wrote women characters. You can see a little bit in the last two novels where he makes an effort at improving this, but it's not there. It's not there completely, and I'm sure if he'd lived a few more years, maybe he would have eventually come around to it. But one of the other things that he explored in his espionage fiction, and, and there's in many of his books, there's a recurring father figure who's sketchy and not very reliable or downright dishonest. And he he admitted in interviews that this was his way of dealing with his father. His father was a con man. There are stories of how he would take David and his brother on these magnificent trips to beautiful places in Europe, ski resorts and all these, you know, top-notch hotels, room service, and then they'd sneak out without paying the bills. When Le Carré became famous, he would sometimes go to stay at these same hotels, and managers would try to get him to pay the bill that his father left unpaid maybe 20 years before, and sometimes before his father died, even currently. Le Carré would go to a hotel, and his father had been there a month before, and walked out on the bill, and sometimes Le Carré paid it, sometimes he didn't. He once bailed his father out of jail in Singapore, and, and that was his life growing up and he found it difficult to deal with. So as most of us do when we have difficult personal relationships, we kind of reflect that in our writing. And he did say that growing up with a father who constantly lied and constantly manipulated people, even his own sons, was the perfect background for becoming a spy. So, write what you know. In an interview last year, after the publication of Agent Running in the Field, Le Carre said he had other stories in him, and that he was already exploring the plot of his next novel, and he joked with the reporter about, I'd better get after it. So John Le Carre, of course, was really David John Moore Cornwell, born in 1931 in Poole, England. He died in Cornwall, as far from London as I could get, he once said. And he died in that sucky year, 2020. Cornwall described himself one time as having his feet firmly on the ground in Cornwall, but that John Le Carre wandered about, head in the clouds, getting into trouble and coming up with these unique characters and timely stories. He was adamant about separating the two sides of him, the two aspects of him, the English gentleman, as he called himself, and the espionage writer. 
He used a pseudonym because in the 1960s, intelligence officers couldn't publish anything under their own name. And he got permission from his superiors to do that. And he showed the novels, the drafts of the novels, to his superiors and, and got the okay before he had them published. He was content, Cornwell was content, to never have anyone know he was actually John le Carre. But when the spy who came in from the cold became such a success, I think it was 30-some weeks on the New York Times bestseller list when it came out, that his fellow spies and his supervisors bragged about it at parties that, oh, yeah, you know, the guy who wrote The Spy Who Came In From The Coal? Well, he works for me. He's, you know, he's a member of the British Intelligence Service. So once that happened, Le Carre honestly couldn't see going forward with his career as an intelligence officer. And so, as he describes it, he and the British Intelligence Service agreed to part ways. The fact of the matter was, he had made enough money that he didn't need to work anymore. Lucky him. All of us writers wish for that. I have a personal theory. This was about the time of that Kim Philby was selling secrets to the Soviet Union. And I and because Le Carre, excuse me, because Cornwell worked mostly in Germany, I have a feeling that his name was one that Philby betrayed to the Soviet Union, and he was essentially, uh, Cornwell was essentially no longer useful once he'd been burned. Le Carre featured a Kim Philby-like character in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, a member of the British Secret Service who betrays his fellow operatives and is eventually identified and captured by George Smiley, who's called out of retirement for this project. Le Carre has spoken out in interviews about Kim Philby. He never forgave him. He considered him a traitor to the end. When Le Carre was in Russia doing some research for The Russia House, one of his books, Kim Philby, who was still alive then and living in Moscow, invited Cornwell, David Cornwell, to his apartment for tea. And Cornwell didn't even bother to answer. He didn't show up, nor did he answer. He considered what Philby had done so egregious as to be unforgivable. Le Carre's writing, or Cornwell's writing, if you will, was of such a character that he could have won any or all of the major literary prizes. When a fellow writer wanted to put his name forth for Britain's prestigious Booker Prize, Cornwell refused to allow him to do it. He also turned down a knighthood. He'd been part of that establishment, both literary and the government, he said, and because he knew those establishments so well, he wanted no accolades from any of them. But he was a devoted Englishman, but also a globalist. He was an adamant opponent of nationalism, a critic of Brexit, gave several interviews against Brexit, 
even showed at, up at some protests. He saw Brexit as merely an outlet for virulent nationalism, and he wrote of the dangers about that in, almost throughout his writing. He gave early warnings to people about both Vladimir Putin, back when Putin first came to power, and Donald Trump. He was one of the first people to say in his writing that spies became spies out of a sense of patriotism, and that patriotism was on both sides, that the good guys didn't have the ownership of it. He said once in an interview that people have the impression that you become KGB because you're evil. And he said that wasn't the case at all, that people become intelligence officers in Russia for the same reason they become intelligence officers in Britain or the United States, and that's to serve their country. In other words, patriotism. He was also said after the fall of the Soviet Union, when the KGB supposedly disappeared and was supposedly reinvented as the SVR and the FSB, that no matter what the Russian intelligence services now call themselves, it's still the KGB. And he would know. Cornwell's pen may have written his last novel, he wrote them by hand, but he has left us espionage writers an important legacy of spies, title pun intended. Best summed up in his own words from The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. What do you think spies are? Priests, saints, and martyrs? They're a squalid procession of vain fools. Traitors, too, yes. Pansies, sadists, and drunkards. People who play cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten lives. All right, thank you so much for indulging me with that. He was so significant in my writing life that I felt I had to do something about it. I'm devastated that there will be no more stories from him unless the novel he was working on, he said he had the idea for in 2019, unless he had progressed far enough that it could be published, there will be no more stories. And that's sad. However, he does, in a way, live on forever because his books are out there. Most of his books are digitized and will be available as long as there's an Amazon. <laughs> so I guess we can be thankful for that. But I will miss him, even though I never met him, never was in the same room with him as I was once with Alan First. But as with most celebrities that we develop a liking for, you come to feel, especially with a writer, when you read a lot of their work, you come to feel as if you know them. Whether that's absurd or not, I don't know. But I will continue to write with him in mind. And I hope I can do his memory justice. So just another reminder, there will be no podcast next week. 
I hope everyone has a wonderful holiday, whichever holiday you celebrate. And we'll see you again on New Year's Eve. And remember, if you have to go out to a New Year's party, wear your mask, socially distance, and keep an eye out for spies. This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Radio, copyright 2020, all rights reserved.